What's up, guys? Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode number 38. My name is James Scully. This month's topic on the Wall Breakers is growth, and I've been doing a lot of thinking about what growth is and how we can achieve growth. For one thing, I think growth is something that is measured over a long period of time. I can't tell you or you can't tell yourself how much you can grow from today till tomorrow. But if you look back over a course of uh, six months to a year, you'll notice that you've grown in your life and things are different. And it's always that way. If we allow ourselves to be vulnerable, it'll lead to serendipity in our lives, which leads to growth. Maybe to define that for myself and even prove that it's validity to myself, I went searching for people that we know who are incredibly or were incredibly successful in their own lives and how they achieved those things. On today's show, I've got clips from Steve Jobs, who, for anybody who doesn't know, ran Apple for years, Milton Glaser, a very famed graphic designer, Saul Bass, who also was a very famed graphic designer and illustrator, and Paul Rand, who is possibly the most famous graphic designer of the 20th century. Also, from a recent TEDx talk called Engineering Serendipity, I've got quotes from a guy named Dan Doherty who does a very good job of explaining how we could allow serendipity into our lives and also some of the things that are working against us at this given moment. It's easy for me to sit here and say this is what I think is possible and my opinion is valid as is yours but I think sometimes when there are recognizable figures such as a Steve Jobs who we know have gone above and beyond the call that the normal people accomplish in their lives, and he explains how and why he got there, we should probably listen to it. As I always say, you can get these podcasts by going to soundcloud.com slash thewallbreakers. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The Wall Breakers and subscribing. If you're going to do those things, rate us, review us. Please, guys, tell a friend, tell two friends, word of mouth spreads these podcasts around. I've been getting some very positive feedback from unexpected sources on the last few interviews lately. I want to thank everybody for that feedback. And if you've got constructive criticism, please lay that on me as well. The only thing that I'm concerned with is making these conversations better, is leading more fulfilled discussions with people, and continuing to break those walls. So on the other side of this brief pause, please stay tuned for the words of Steve Jobs and his thoughts on fear of failure. Now, I've actually always found something uh, to be very true, which is um, most people don't get those experiences because they never ask. Uh, I've never found anybody that didn't want to help me if I asked them for help. I always call them up. I called up, um, this will date me, but I called up Bill Hewlett when I was 12 years old, and he lived in Palo Alto. His number was still in the phone book. And he answered the phone himself. He said, yes? He said, hi, I'm Steve Jobs. I'm 12 years old. I'm a student in high school, and I want to build a frequency counter. And I was wondering if you had any spare parts I could have. And he laughed, and he he gave me the spare parts to build this frequency counter, and he gave me a job that summer in Hewlett-Packard working on the assembly line, putting nuts and bolts together on frequency counters. He got me a job in the place that built them. And I was in heaven. And I've never found anyone who said no or hung up the phone when I called. I just asked. And when people ask me, I try to be as responsive, you know, to pay that, that debt of gratitude back. Um, most people never pick up the phone and call. Most people never ask. And that's what separates sometimes the people that do things from the people that just dream about them. You've got you to act. 
and you've got to be uh, willing to uh, fail. You've got to be willing to crash and burn, you know, with people on the phone, with starting a company, with whatever. If you're afraid of failing, uh, you won't get very far. When Steve Jobs passed away in 2011, he was one of the most wealthy people on this planet. And he describes there, this was an interview from many years earlier in the early 1990s, but what he's describing is a willingness to put himself out there. While he says there at the end of the clip that you have to be willing to fail, to be willing to crash and burn on the phone with somebody, in person with somebody, he also says that any time that he ever asked for anything, he got it. So it seems like Although we have to be willing to fail, chances are when we put ourselves out there, we never actually do fail because even if we don't get whatever it is we thought we wanted in the immediacy, we've opened ourselves up to the possibility of other things, of more things, of new things, of different things. To me, this is incredibly important. Steve Jobs is one of the most successful people of our personal generation. And all what he's saying is that we all dream. Every one of us has dreams. We all want to accomplish things. We all have passions that are burning inside of us. And if we put ourselves out there, then the sky is truly the limit. But what exactly is fear of failure? How do we define that? Milton Glaser, one of the most famous graphic designers of the 20th century, was asked this question a few years ago. Milton has produced the I Heart New York logo. He has the very famous psychedelic Bob Dylan poster. He's done many other things like the DC Bullet logo used by DC Comics. And also, if you're a craft beer lover, the Brooklyn Brewery logo. Milton tries to get to the bottom of how we define failure, why are we afraid of it, what should we do with it, and where do we go from there? Fear of failure. It's a phrase that requires a little thought. I also have a sense that unless you analyze both the nature of fear and the nature of failure, you won't come to any agreement about the consequences of fear. When I talk to students about the distinction between professionalism and personal development, I very often put it this way. In professional life, you must discover a kind of identity for yourself that becomes a sort of trademark, a, a way of working that is distinctive that people can recognize. The reason for this is that the path to financial success and notoriety is by having something that no one else has. You know, It's kind of like a brand, one of my most despised words. So what you do in life in order to be professional is you develop your brand, your way of working, your attitude that is understandable to others. In most cases, it turns out to be something fairly narrow, like this person really knows how to draw cocker spaniels, or this person is very good with typography uh, directed in a more feminine way, or whatever the particular attribute is. And then you discover you have something to offer that is better than other people have, or at least more distinctive. And what you do with that is you become a specialist, and people call you to get more of what you've become adept at doing. So if you do anything 
and become celebrated for it, people will send you more of that. And for the rest of your life, quite possibly, you will have that characteristic. People will continue to ask you for what you have already done and succeeded at. This is the way to professional accomplishment. You have to demonstrate that you know something unique that you can repeat over and over and over until ultimately you lose interest in it. The consequence of specialization and success is that it hurts you. It hurts you because it basically doesn't aid in your development. The truth of the matter is that understanding development comes from failure. People begin to get better when they fail. They move towards failure. They discover something as a result of failing. They fail again. They discover something else. They fail again. They discover something else. So the model for personal development is antithetical to the model for professional success. As a result of that, I believe that Picasso as a model is the most useful model you can have in terms of your artistic interest because whenever Picasso learned how to do something, he abandoned it. And as a result of that, in terms of his development as an artist, the results were extraordinary. It is the opposite of what happens in the typecasting for professional accomplishment. But moving on from that particular idea to the idea of fear of failure, which is an inhibiting characteristic, one question is, what are you afraid of? Is it the condemnation of others? If you do something and it is inadequate, is the criticism of critics and other experts and even your friends and relatives that embarrasses you, that makes you unwilling to go forward? Of course, there's also in professional life, the fear is that you won't get any more work because visible failure is a detriment. People think, and perhaps correctly, that you don't know what you're doing. So there is that inhibit, inhibiting factor. Another one that may be more profound and more interesting is our own self-criticism. A characteristic of uh, artistic education is for people to tell you that you're a genius and that you're an artistic genius and that you're a creative genius. And so everybody gets this idea if they go to art school that they're really a genius. Sadly, it isn't true. Genius occurs very rarely. So the real embarrassing issue about failure is your own acknowledgement that you're not a genius, that you're not as good as you thought you were. And doing a project that is truly complex and difficult tests your real ability. And since we all have a sensitive ego, alas, 
within our confident facade. The thing that we most fear in regard to failure is our own self-acknowledgement that we really don't exactly know what we're doing. There's only one solution. And it relates to what I was saying earlier. You must embrace failure. You must admit what is. You must find out what you're capable of doing and what you're not capable of doing. That is the only way to deal with the issue of success and failure because otherwise you simply will never subject yourself to the possibility that you are as not as good as you want to be, hope to be, or as others think you are. But that is, of course, delusional. So my advice finally about fear of failure, which is a kind of uh, romantic idea, there's only one way out. Embrace the failure. What exactly does it mean to embrace failure? In this audio clip from Milton Glaser, he hits on a lot of points. One, that we can find a comfort zone in life, and oftentimes that comfort zone for a while can lead to financial stability, which is something that we're all seeking. But at the same time, because really what we're seeking is internal peace, we find that when we take ourselves out of our comfort zones. Glazer mentions about embracing failure because by acknowledging that failure exists, we realize that we're not perfect and we're not geniuses. And I would add to that by saying that failure is imagination of the mind just like any other emotion that we might have. And by admitting that we're not geniuses, it also means that we don't know everything, which also means that we're on a learning path and we're present in that path. I am no genius. What I have personally learned about myself in the last two years has been that I've gained an ability to trust myself when I put myself out there because the times that I didn't put myself out there, I stayed in the same place or worse, went backwards. The time that I did put myself out there, I've always found out something new about myself that has added to my life in some way. What should we do? In an economic climate that we're currently in, where it's becoming harder and harder for working class and middle class people to find job stability. How do we balance those feelings of potential financial stress with a desire to put ourselves out there and take risks and grow creatively, grow emotionally, grow personally? How do we do these things? Where is the fine line? One of the most famous graphic designers and illustrators of the 20th century was Saul Bass. He has since passed away. And the great thing about the internet is that, much like with Steve Jobs, there are recorded conversations with these luminaries being posted online on a daily basis. Saul Bass is one of the, like I said, most famous illustrators of the 20th century. If you've ever seen the poster for The Man with the Golden Arm, that's a Saul Bass poster. He has a very specific style that if you look him up, you will recognize it immediately. Bass was asked the question about making money versus quality work, which Sometimes goes hand in hand, sometimes does not go hand in hand. In American uh, 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 commerce mm -hmm. that you deal with are companies that don't deal with aesthetics, mm -hmm. you see. 
So what are you saying in essence? What I'm saying is... That money is the most important thing? No, I'm not dealing with money yet. I'm dealing with what a designer has to be concerned about. The, what I'm saying is that aesthetics are your problem and mine, nobody else's. The fact, the fact of the matter is I want everything we do, that I do personally, that our office mm -hmm. does, to be beautiful. I don't give a damn whether the client understands that that's worth anything or whether the client thinks it's worth anything or whether it is worth anything. It's worth it to me. It's the way I want to live my life. I want to make beautiful things, even if nobody cares, as against ugly things. Now, sometimes you can't make everything beautiful because you, you, you know, but you, that's my intent. And I'm willing to pay for that. Now, that's where money comes in because you can get much more quickly to an answer if you don't worry about those things. You're, it's costing, it costs every designer money to make it beautiful because it means you have to spend more time, you have to futz with it, you have to noodle, you have to push, you have to pull, you have to try, you have to do, and that's all money. You're eating up your budget. But that's a commitment that you either make or you don't make. Now, there are a lot of firms, a lot of designers who just do the work and get paid and make a buck and uh, are happy. And there are many, many designers, I, I would suspect more, that really do care about those things. But I think it's very important for us not to be under the illusion that anybody else cares. What Saul Bass is saying here, I think, is up for a lot of interpretation. Yes, he too is a graphic designer like Milton Glaser was, and like Paul Rand was as well, who I will get to in a moment. But these people are visual artists who develop and execute what we know as a visual vernacular. There should be beautiful things in this world. If you look around you at all times, there are things in front of us. Are they beautiful or are they not? Well, that's up to our own interpretation. Much like what Saul Bass is saying here in terms of some people do the job that they want to do, they make their money, and they're happy. That's totally fine. Some people want to futz and they want to pull and they want to push and they want to try, and that's fine too. This is a decision that we internally need to make. That's why Saul Bass says, I don't care whether the client understands it. I don't care who disagrees with me. This is what I personally want to do. So the reason why I've played that clip is not just for a comparison of whether or not you could make beautiful things or make money because sometimes those things go hand in hand, sometimes they don't. That's just the minutia of life. But what's important there is that Saul Bass wants you to know that the decisions that we make in our lives should be solely about what we want, within reason, without being selfish against others, but in terms of what's going to make us happy, I can't personally, as James Scully, worry about whether the decisions that I make to make myself happy whether John Doe or Jane Doe down the street think I'm doing a good thing or, or not. I have to worry about my own self, and when I look in the mirror in the morning, I need to know I am the kind of man that I want to be. And that goes back to the point about Milton Glaser, where he's saying that you embrace the fear of failure, which in the sense means to embrace being present. Now, these two men have had an incredible career between them and Paul Rand. Paul Rand, he of the IBM tagline of the Westinghouse of Think Different. He is someone who, if you look his work up, you will know exactly who he is. He was asked, what is the importance of creativity in this world? Beauty, visual beauty, of those of us who aspire to create visual beauty, 
what is our personal importance? Where previously we just heard Saul Bass talk about not caring whether the client gets it or not. But what does Paul Rand have to say about that? Uh, I, I discovered that uh, after thinking about the subject for so many years, that we're not as unimportant as we think we are. Because, first of all, things that look good are important for our, for our environment. You know, I mean, it's better for things to look good than to look bad. <clears throat> of course, the problem there is uh, it depends on whose opinion you're, you're seeking. But I think the value of a designer, for example, <clears throat> to, a, to a businessman is that he can add a great deal of value to his product, to the businessman's product. And I, I don't think that businessmen really understand this. Uh, he can make, uh, he can in, in improve the quality by making it look better. And many, uh, very often, the d designers have ideas that, that not only improve the appearance of the product, but also improve the product itself. I mean, this, of course, is truer in industrial design that is in graphic design. But uh, a designer is a good designer who understands his business can make things memorable, make them easy to recall, which is very important, and uh, improve the general quality of life, which is the only reason for our existence. Paul Rand and Saul Bass have since passed on, and Milton Glaser is still alive. But one might say, well, this is all academic speak, because these three gentlemen, and Steve Jobs, if he hadn't, so the four gentlemen, they're all incredibly successful. We're at the position that we're at currently. How do we get to their point? So, what I've just tried to illustrate is that vulnerability, when we put ourselves out there, will lead to success. But how do we go about engineering the serendipity that comes in between growth and allowing ourselves to be vulnerable? As part of TEDx, Daniel Doherty did a conversation on engineering serendipity in his opinion. He is a techie guy. He's somebody who likes a good beer. He is a guy who likes to go out in London and enjoy the surroundings around him. How does he define serendipity and how is he saying that we should engineer it? I don't believe in fate or destiny. Something about it being my life being predetermined <coughs> and whatever I do I'm going to end up at that place just feels wrong. But at various stages through my life, I've just found myself at the right place, at the right time, and one of these magical, happy moments has happened. And when I look at it, it's as if someone has nudged me in that direction, sometimes pushed me, but it certainly doesn't feel like an accident. And serendipity just feels right to me. So, what is serendipity? The Oxford English Dictionary describes it as the faculty of making happy and unexpected discoveries by accident. The definition I prefer is a fortunate happenstance or pleasant surprise. I want more pleasant surprises. I want more for you too. I think it's safe to say we'd all like more pleasant surprises. What's keeping us from having these pleasant surprises more plentifully in our lives? Is there something that's in front of us that we know is in front of us that we may or may not realize is what's doing the trick in the opposite direction and keeping us where we currently are? Should we trust technology or people to engineer our serendipity? 
Technology, in case it's not obvious, I love it. Technology is great at connecting us. There are 7.2 billion people on this planet, and 3.4 billion are connected via the internet. Every single day, over 2 billion people connect via social media to chat to each other, to share what they're doing. Technology is amazing. But it's also amazing at distracting us. Those average social media users that there's 2 billion of, they see 54,000 words worth of text every single day. Daniel earlier spoke about the mobile phones. We're creating more and more of this noise. We're taking pictures, videos, texts, tweets, updates, swiping to the left, the right. But we're actually creating, the average person is creating six newspapers worth of information every day. We're making it worse for ourselves. As we walk around online, offline, we're going to see 200 newspapers worth of information every day. And that graph's going up. How the heck are we going to find serendipity and happiness in all this noise? I know I'm not the only one who has felt at times like social media or technology has become somewhat of a burden in my life and I can't disconnect from the grid. I found that I can disconnect from the grid, but it's important to know why we need to disconnect from the grid. So the other thing is how much time are we actually spending with the technology as opposed to people? If the technology is connecting you to the people, more power to you, keep going. But I've started to notice we're using more and more time with technology. Two years ago, in 2013, we were spending 8.3 hours every single day with digital media. Even if you're multitasking and you're with the person, that still counts. Today, 2015, that has creeped up to 9.3 hours every single day. So even if we're talking and you're on your phone, that counts as that time. So I want you to question how you're spending your time and when you're on technology. Is it with the technology itself or the people? Because this trend is going one way. In 2017, we will be spending 10 and a quarter hours every single day with digital media. Question how you want to spend your time. Something I recently did with my iPhone, I turned off all notifications on my phone except for phone calls and text messages received. I get no Facebook messages, I get no Instagram alerts, I get no Twitter alerts. I get no social media pushed to my device except when I personally want to log into social media to see, which I probably do too much anyway to begin with. But the point being that I noticed that as soon as I did that, there was way less background noise going on in my life and I could focus on whatever was in front of me at the time. And I also noticed that by focusing on what was in front of me at the time, I wasn't looking inward as much because I felt at peace with whatever I was doing at that given moment. Because like Dan mentioned in that last clip, even if you're multitasking. Well, if I'm at a bar speaking with you and we're having a drink, why should I be multitasking on my phone anyway? That takes me out of the moment. What's a solution for this? Am I going to connect with these people through my phone? Or do I need to look up? Talking about technology and people, the next guy is a bit of a hero of mine. 
This is Professor Robin Dunbar, who studies anthropology at Oxford University, and in my opinion is the, the world's leading expert on people, communities. And I heard him back in 2012, when you can imagine Facebook was quite popular. Facebook did a study, and the average person had 150 friends. Robin Dunbar had done a study on how many social relationships humans could manage, and his hypothesis was 150, so surely it must be right. By 150, he means social relationships. So when I see you, I know you, but I also know how you're connected to the lady over here and the guy over there, real relationships. So I'm sitting in that room in 2012 thinking, I've got over 400 friends on Facebook. This guy's wrong. <laughs> but actually, when I take my phone out, I speak to the same 10 people every, every day, every week. It's interesting, just because they're not real friends, they're connections. Build the relationships, build the friendships. And one of the things Professor Dunbar, so it sounds more serious, said, men and women maintain relationships in different ways. So women will have a face-to-face -face conversation, but digital media can help. If they're on Skype and having a conversation, that helps maintain the relationship. I'm afraid for guys it doesn't work, but how much of a relationship can you maintain in seven seconds? Hello, mate. Yeah, 7.30, see you at the pub. <laughs> Men build relationships or maintain friendships by shared experiences. So that game of football they watched, or that game of pool they played, or when one of them fell over, that's what maintains relationships. I'm also noticing with all these different types of technology, different ages are using different tools to communicate. So my nephew will send me a message on Facebook. My mum will call me. She wants to see me, but she can't always see me, so she'll call. My brother will text me. Someone else will send me a message on another platform. It's fragmented, but actually, if you put my nephew, my mum, my cousin, my mate, and everyone else in a room, they talk. And surely, if that is a shared experience, and that is a shared communication, and that is how we maintain relationships, that's also the way we should start them. Technology is not a replacement for real relationships. Ah, okay, so I think I'm getting it. How about you? We can engineer serendipity if we disconnect, because when we disconnect, we realize that the people around us are the people who make us feel most like who we truly are on the inside. And then we can grow from that. Is that what Dan thinks? How can you engineer your own serendipity? I think there are, well, I've got a couple of ways. One, I think, apply a passion filter. Put something over your eyes so that when you look at people, you're trying to find the passion, whether that's online or in real life. Ask them some questions. What do you do for fun when you're not at work? What do you enjoy doing? Hey, if you had to do something for 40 hours a week for the rest of your life, what would you do? People want to share, but you have to kind of ask and sometimes dig it out a little bit. The other one is a local filter. Have a look around you. Walk the streets, enjoy the sights, see the people actually find something that you enjoy. When a friend comes to visit from overseas, don't just take them to the tourist places. Show them your local filter. Show them what a local will see as they're wandering around. That's the story they'll go back and tell. 
But if all else fails, use my eyes. How can we use technology to create you know, more connections with the people? Help us be more connected with the place. If you're with the people in the place having an awesome time and you've got that mobile phone in your pocket, it's not bad to video it, put it online and share that with people. But if you're in a room with your best friends and you're just doing something else online and ignoring them, the technology's getting in the way. I think the technology has to bring people together, then get out of the way and let the people get on with what they're doing. I think we can all make a difference if we just look slightly different. Be proud of where you're from and share it with people. Encourage people to actually talk. And the technology is going to get better and better at connecting us and helping us to engineer our serendipity. So where do we go from here? How do I close this? How do I piece these thoughts together? Steve Jobs lets us know that anytime that he put himself out there and asked for something, he got what he wanted. Steve Jobs lived one of the most successful lives that any of us can recall easily in the 21st century. Paul Rand, Saul Bass, Milton Glaser all said, embrace failure because we need to know who we are and trust that. And no matter who we are, if we are visual people, we are giving life to the world. And no matter whether you are a professional creative or not, you're a visual person. So by you exuding visual positivity, you're adding to this world. We can get visual positivity and create serendipity if we're willing to put ourselves out there and be with the people we care about in the places we care about being proud of who we are. When we are proud of who we are, because we should all be proud of who we are, that's when we grow from it. Serendipity is not just being in the right place at the right time. It's also trusting that we've gotten to this point and know who we are because of the process that we call our own lives that we have lived. And therefore, if we know who we are because we should, we grow because we love ourselves. And when we love ourselves, we can move forward because we believe in ourselves. I hope that you guys enjoyed this clip show today. These are four well-known minds and one man, Daniel Doherty, who really, I felt, brings the point home. If you look up TEDx, you'll be able to find his talk, and you'll also be able to find many, many other great talks. I'm sure most of you guys know what TED is at this point. If you look up Milton Glaser, you'll be able to see some of the great graphic design that he has done throughout his career. The same goes for the movie posters of Saul Bass and the many, many logos, branding, other wonderful marks by Paul Rand. These were three... These are three fantastic graphic designers. And I always close these podcasts the same way, guys. It's the middle of spring now. Everything around us in the world is growing. It's spring, so that means things are blooming. We are blooming as well. Get out there, guys. Break those walls. My name is James Scully. This has been Breaking Walls, episode number 38. And until next time, I'll catch you on the flip side. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful, wonderful week.